It is a good thing that we're together with the Lord to hear him speak to us. So let us turn in his word to our text from this morning, the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible or a seat Bible, it's page 959, or should be abouts there. And even as you turn there, I want to encourage you to listen. God doesn't just write, he speaks. And so hear with me the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Y'all know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. The eye, therefore, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, 
The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, or our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, y'all are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord, all of which he has spoken, that his joy may be in us, and that our joy may be complete. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, inspire me to proclaim you, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that everyone may be presented mature to you. For this may I toil with all the energy that I struggle and that you work within me. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So friends, we're continuing our sermon series through 1 Corinthians, entitled Equipping the Saints. And today we're going to hear how God equips the saints with gifts. Though I read all of the chapter, because it's a full chapter, the sermon is going to focus on the first 11 verses. That's going to be chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, as they really contain the whole point of the passage. And in summary, that point is this. It's less about the gifts given than the gift giver. It's less about the gifts given and more about the gift giver, the triune God. The gift giver is himself the true gift The gift giver is himself the true gift in the Holy Spirit. So let's walk through this verse by verse, shall we? Okay. Verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, right? Paul is now addressing a new topic. That's why he's addressing concerns that have actually been posed to him by this congregation. A concern about spiritual persons or things. We have it translated as gifts because that's in fact how Paul would have us understand anything that is spiritual, 
as a gift. So concerning spiritual things, concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. It seems that there was misinformation and misunderstanding about these spiritual things. So Paul's saying, I want to be clear because I want you to be clear. And not only clear, but as he'll be talking about, he wants us to be humble and united. Because yet again, as we've seen through this whole letter, there's a theme. And that theme is that ignorance of and arrogance in the knowledge of God is causing division in the church. Ignorance of and arrogance in knowledge of God is causing division within the church. And the apostle, once again, wants to nip these both in the bud by reorienting his listeners. Okay, so how does he start this? Verse two, y'all know, okay? Y'all know that when you were pagans, I'm gonna use y'all because this is plural, all right? Y'all know that when y'all were pagans, y'all were led astray to mute idols, however, y'all were led. Not if, but when you were pagans. Gentiles. Intriguingly, the apostle doesn't address any Jews, either because they weren't there, which I think is unlikely within the congregation, but likely also because he's just grouping everyone into such a waywardness apart from Christ. That whether their religion or their practices, it was as idolatry. However you were led, you were led astray to idols. And not just idols, mute idols, speechless, powerless, helpless, vain things that we follow. And they didn't even have Instagram or Twitter, right? We can literally follow them. The very opposite of spiritual things, the very opposite of the spirit, the helper speaking, powerful, active, real Idols seem spiritual, but they are not the spirit, so they're fake. Y'all were led not only to them in one manner or way, but you are all led out from them. That's the assumption here, right? You had been led astray by idols and to idols, but now you've been led to the living God. You've been led out from in front of your screens to witness this real thing. You've been led out of fantasy into reality, out of darkness into light, out of slavery into freedom, aliens to citizens, enemies to sons, from abuse to adoration, from emptiness to fullness, from being no one and no people into being God's own people. God, the real deal, the true and living God by the Spirit. That's the new reality. And he wants to impress it upon us in the beginning. And therefore, verse 3, therefore I want you to understand right, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He's making a pretty bold and radical dichotomy right here, right? And the reason is because this gets very integrally 
and necessarily into the heart of the apostles' proclamation, right? Jesus is Lord is the central confession of our faith. The, to confess it is to be saved. The apostles preached so that hearers may believe, as John says, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have eternal life in his name. So this is central. And two things about this. On the one hand, let no one be ignorant. The only way you can confess that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God, is by the Spirit of God. In the Holy Spirit, only this Spirit. There is no other in or out. There's no in-between. And he has been given. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He has been poured out richly and powerfully. The question isn't whether there is the Spirit, but whether we would receive him. If you confess that Jesus is Lord... And if you have, if you haven't, I invite you to do it right now. What, if you believe, confess right now that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Okay, well, no one can say it except in the Holy Spirit. Whether you feel him or not, he is always at work empowering what is true. So let no one be ignorant. The Spirit is at work to empower the confession. We just sometimes need to open ourselves up to it, huh? But on the other hand, let no one be arrogant. The only way you can confess that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God, is by the Spirit of God. By him, in him, from him. You can't earn him, you can't buy him. You can't coax him. You can't persuade him. You can't grow him. You can't own him. You can only receive him. And we can only receive him as a gift, a gift of sheer grace. As the great preacher John Chrysostom said, such gifts are spiritual because they the works of the Spirit alone. Human effort contributing nothing to the working of such wonders. As Paul wrote earlier, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let us not be arrogant to think that any of our faith is from circumstance or upbringing or native to us by right or virtue of some merit or intrinsic property, or citizenship, or color, or status of ours. All is the working of his grace, and it should humble us and humble us to delight. So the apostle wants us to be neither ignorant of nor arrogant in spiritual things, but all the more he wants us to humbly and intimately know the Spirit Paul's pastoral concern is not so much about the spiritual things given, but about the gift-giving spirit. See, there ain't no gift without a giver. You know what I'm saying? Right? There's no receiving from him without believing in him that he gives. There's no good in being spiritual, but not being in the spirit. 
And what's the point of being led out from mute and vain idols if you're not being led to the speaking and living God? Right? It's right to want the gifts God gives, but if you want to get what's given, you got to get right with the giver. Okay? It's right to get, want the gifts God gives, but if you want to get what's given, you got to get right with the giver. Get right with him. That's reconciliation. Get right by him. That's relationship. And the good news is that Christ Jesus, whom we confess as Lord, has reconciled us to right relationship with God the Father by virtue of his right relationship with God. The Son of God gave up himself and all his rights that we might be have the rights to become sons of God. And as Paul says, if sons, then heirs. Heirs to what? To the promises of God, the gifts of God the presence and relationship of God. (laughs) You want the gifts of God? You want to get right with the giver? Come to Jesus Christ, and you'll be given more than you can imagine. So he's directing us back to the giver, and that's going to be the common theme in here, right? Verse 4, as we move on. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. There are varieties of what's, but it's all the same who. Okay, There are varieties of what's, but it's all the same who. When the Lord Jesus resurrected in power and he went and talked to his apostles as recorded at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into what? Into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three names, yet one name. Three persons, yet one God. Three means, yet one source, one power, distinct and yet the same. It sounds kind of mysterious, What is a mystery, anyway? Commonly, we think of it something as cryptically hidden for us to solve or to be solving. And this Greek word, mysterion, while it does mean something beyond our comprehension, it doesn't mean something hidden. It means something revealed. It means something made known to us. If the central confession of our faith is Jesus is Lord, the central mystery of our faith is that God is one and three. God is Trinity. God is Father, is Son, is Holy Spirit. Not to be known by some intuition, but in intimacy. This is what the church has called contemplation. Contemplation of who God is. And the apostle here is personally pastorally, practically contemplating the mystery of the Trinity, not because it's some esoteric philosophy, but because it's the central truth and thus the central means of reorienting and resolving the congregation's issues. It's not an abstract thing to just be in the realm of theologians. The Trinity is meant to be the central heart of our contemplation and prayer of God. God, the Holy Trinity, is like our North Pole. 
Contemplating him is like using our compass when we have lost the way. And what's more, the Father is gravitationally pulling us in. Jesus has blazed the way from us. And the Spirit is at work in us, guiding us along the very path, right? To think this way focuses and fixes us upon God. Pulling us out of ourselves, out of our issues, and in to God, contemplation fixes us by fixing us on God. And so as I think abstract or lofty as sometimes discussions of the Trinity might sound, I want to direct us, maybe just practice contemplating the mystery of it. The light of God is meant to melt away our sorrows, to heal and warm our divisions. If we don't spend time looking at him, it's going to be kind of difficult to experience that. So the Trinity is of central importance pastorally, not just philosophically. The apostle continues this thought about the the, the distinction of many gifts, but the oneness of this uh, oneness of God, right? Verse seven, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Several years back, my in-laws took us, Elizabeth, my wife, me, our then less than two daughter, two years old daughter, Aveline, my brother-in-law on a trip to uh, explore the South Island in New Zealand. It was breathtaking, okay? For the trip, we each received plane tickets, we each received a place to stay, we each received a place to sit in the car, we each received food. We also each received some things that we needed. I received new hiking boots, because I only had old ones, and I would be carrying most of the supplies, right? My father-in-law received a new backpack because he had other things that he would have to carry and he didn't have a backpack. Elizabeth received one of those real nice Duder kit carriers, right? Because she'd have to carry Aveline, right? Etc. We each received different gifts for the different activities we would serve in the trip. But they themselves were not so much the gifts as participations in the one gift we had of going together as a family on this trip. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not a manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, but the manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit is the giver, yes, but he is the gift. These are manifestations of him. He does truly give them so that we can appropriately say we possess them, but they are wholly dependent upon him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Same Lord, same spirit. We are not given superpowers, but we are empowered superly in the spirit. Each of us, whether we know it or not, each of us 
as the apostle elaborates in this chapter with the body metaphor, right? Every member has a different part and it's necessary for the whole. Each one who has been baptized into the body of Christ has received the Spirit and has received gifts and is empowered by him in various ways and in various times for the welfare of the church. Two things here. On the one hand, they are gifts of grace and they are not to be presumed upon. They are not to be presumed upon. Let no one, let none of us be so sure what our gifts are. Okay? Or how they are to be used, or when, or why. Or that ours are so superior or more necessary. That's what the apostle and the scriptures call arrogance. Remember chapter 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought. The apostles Paul, the apostle Paul's thorough education was indeed a gift. He used it to discuss with philosophers and preach to the people and convince them of the Lord Jesus. So it indeed was a gift. But his other gifts were an infamous persecution of the church, a thorn in the flesh, and a very unimpressive speaking ability. Let us not presume upon what our gifts are. But on the other hand, these are abilities of service to be exercised. They're not to be presumed upon, but they are to be exercised. Some of us are ignorant of how the Spirit would work through us because we do not employ ourselves to his service. We don't endeavor in the way. We don't venture on him and venture wholly. We don't risk it for the biscuit. Remember, the Spirit gives gifts for the common good, in otherwise for circumstances to do good. In other words, we have to put ourselves in circumstances to do good and focus on God in the midst of them to know what the Spirit would do through us. One doesn't know what a machine can do unless one uses it and uses it in need. Abilities, gifts, services have to be exercised to be known. And so we can't presume upon them, but we also have to exercise them. And that, my friends, is a place of risk and a place of trust. A place of trust that God will manifest what he desires in the situation for your good and for the churches. I mean, look at this list of gifts and abilities. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. How do you know whether the Spirit would empower you with divine wisdom if you don't go among those who need counsel and ask him? To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. How do you know whether the Spirit would empower you with inspired knowledge if you are not around those who need to be informed? And ask him. To another, faith by the same Spirit. How do you know whether the Spirit would empower you with a great faith, that is, trust, 
if you do not enter into trials and tribulations and ask him for it. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. How do you know whether the spirit wouldn't empower you with a miraculous healing in your touch if you do not draw near to those who are ill and ailing and ask him? Verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, to another of various kinds of tongues, to another interpretations of tongues. Do you get my point? How do we know whether the Spirit would empower us, is empowering us in the little things and the great things, ordinarily and extraordinarily, with natural talents or divine wonders, if we do not venture into places where we might be needy of them? Are we letting arrogant presumption of our own human capacity squelch the spirit? Or are we letting slothful ignorance of our divine capacities quench the spirit? Or are we even letting the anxiety about not falling into either error, what's my gift, how do I use it well, what do I do, rather than focusing on the giver, with wonder and thanksgiving and letting him show what he would empower you to do. You know, this is why we, we could go several ways with this passage, and I haven't chosen to go on in a great amount of detail about all of these various gifts. One, it's not an exhaustive list. But two, that's not the point The point isn't about these gifts in particular. The point is that whatever the gifts and services and abilities one has, they have been given, and he would empower them. And the main point there he ends with here is in verse 11. Whatever they are, whatever it may be, wherever, however, for whomever, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Every empowerment is the power of the Spirit. Every manifestation is the presence of the Spirit. Every gift, he is the giver. In every gift, he is the gift. The Spirit is the promise of the Father. That's what Jesus told the disciples there at the beginning of Acts as it's recorded. Wait here until you receive the promise of the Father. The Apostle Peter proclaimed, Repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift. The gift of what? Of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, that is, the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls unto himself. Each one gifted, gifted not merely with this or that, but with the gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And by way of conclusion, I want to emphasize and exalt something that is obvious in the text, but maybe perhaps not obvious enough at least in my context, I'm struck by, and I think maybe for us, right? Who empowers the gifts? Verse 6, God. Who empowers the gifts? Verse 11, the Spirit. The Spirit of God is God. 
God's promise to us to receive the Spirit is God's promise to us to receive himself. The Spirit is not a supernatural force. The Spirit is God. If you walk away this morning with one thing impressed upon you, let it be this, that God himself is giving himself as his own gift to us. All is yours, the apostle says. All is yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. All that is God and is God's is ours who are in God by being in his spirit. And the spirit is in us. That's why Jesus said, it is better if I go away, for if I go away, I will send to you a helper. That is the Spirit. I mean, if the good news is that God came to dwell among us in Christ Jesus as one of us, how much more is it good news that God is now dwelling within us as our very Spirit? How much more intimate and united with God would you like to be than that he lives within you? The one in the same spirit that hovered over waters in creation that breathed life into Adam and Eve that led Israel out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and signs and wonders and terrible things that invigorated David, that empowered Samson, that inspired Solomon, that inspired the prophets, the spirit that conceived Jesus out of nothing as he made the world out of nothing, that rested upon him as a dove, that led him into the wilderness and sustained him that raised him up from the grave and rushed mightily upon the apostles. The same Spirit who fills the church with faith and joy and signs and wonders and gifts and talents and miracles, this same Spirit that shall raise up every person from the grave shall bring them before the judgment seat of Christ to behold his face who shall bring heaven down to earth and bring the church up to God as a bride adorned for her husband, who says, come, I am making all things new. This spirit promises to be within us, to be our gift. So friends, don't resign yourself to a shallow life of spirituality. But repent and turn to God. Contemplate the wonders of his promises and his life and be filled with the Holy Spirit, receiving his life, an eternal life, an abundant life, an empowered life in the Spirit. Amen? So Spirit, we praise you with the Father and with the Son, one God, now and forever, eternally glorified. Amen.